Hello, it's Shahid here. Welcome back. Our award show is open and the final deadline is the 15th of April. But if you want to save any last minute headaches and panics, you can get your entries into our third deadline, which is Friday the 8th of April. And if you do enjoy listening to these podcasts, please do hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you do have a spare 10 seconds, please do give us a rating and a review. It really, really does help. We had some amazing news last week. Our Talent and Diversity Fund had been awarded. Um, and for those of you who don't know, we raise money every single year from our award show. And we raise money towards our Talent and Diversity Fund. We then ask charities to submit an idea for the fund of how they would help underrepresented people into the healthcare advertising industry. We then put those pictures out to our winners of the previous award show. They then get to decide where that money goes. And this year we had a tie. So the winners were the School of Communication of Arts, which is the world's most awarded advertising school. And they're based down in Brixton in London and also the Ideas Foundation. And they really help underprivileged kids into our industry. And you can see their full pitches and proposals on our website at thecreativefloor.com slash awards and just hit the talent fund button and you can see all the amazing work that they do. And you can, of course, get involved your yourself in terms of helping and supporting them and just a massive massive thank you to everyone who does enter our award show it really really does help us with all of our charity work and all the amazing things that we're able to do this podcast by the way is open to anyone to promote their services jobs or anything so please do get in touch if you want to get into the ears of our audience and today's shout out is for jsr productions they are a fantastic production company with tons of amazing illustrators and CGI houses such as Boom. Um, and for anyone who's seen this year's Creative Floor promo animation, JSR and Boom have basically put that together. Do check it out if you haven't seen it. It is absolutely fantastic. Uh, you'll never see a sexier brick in the world. So if you want to see more of their stuff, do check out jsragency.com. Right, so onto the podcast. This was such an honor for any creative out there. They don't really need much of an introduction to Lurch's archive. But for those of you who perhaps haven't heard of archive, I would say they were the biggest and arguably the most important creative publication in the world. I've grown up with them. They've been around for decades and just getting selected to be part of their publication is, is such an honor. And I think they really help inspire the global creative community and even getting your work into an into Lurch's archive massively helps in winning awards um, as, as the award seasons kick off. So we speak to Lewis, who is the co-owner. Um, he talks about an amazing refresh in the podcast. He does mention that it will be ready in April. Um, Lewis has been in touch and said it's likely to be May now. So just a little small correction. So don't get too excited. <laughs> but I guess they want it to be absolutely perfect before they unleash it out to the world. I basically ask Lewis everything that you would want to know about Archive. Why are there two spellings to Lurches? Uh, who gets to pick the work? Who's the best person to lobby? And just tons and tons of questions that I imagine most of you would want to ask uh, when speaking to Lurch's archive. Anyway, Lewis has an amazing background um, and he was generous enough to share some stories around David Carson, his meeting with Johnny Ive, 
it's just fantastic. So for all the designers, all the art directors, all the writers, all the creatives out there, you are going to absolutely geek out on this. I am now going to stop talking because you're probably getting very annoyed at me delaying you listening to this fantastic podcast. Um, I know you're going to love this as much as I did recording it. Enjoy. Welcome back, everyone, to another Creative Floor podcast. It's Shahid here. We have another amazing guest for you today, and I couldn't be more excited to bring you the owner of Lurch's Archive, Mr. Lewis Blackwell. Good morning. Good morning, Shahid. Um, I'm one of the owners. Uh, I'm, I'm in uh, a company called Creative Stands International, and it's a great pleasure to have recently taken on the wonderful responsibility of, um, of owning Lurch's Archive. So, uh, Co-owner, yes, co-owner then, yeah. right? So, yes. so it's, it's a slightly complicated thing, I should say, as, as these things always are. But, but I'm, I'm in a business called Creative Stands International with my wonderful business partner, Alan Page, who some people may know as a, as a very successful creative director in years gone by. And yeah. um, we have uh, quite recently, last year, um, taken on Lurch's Archive, which I've known and loved for, oof, a very long time, too too long to dare mention. Um, but yeah, most most of its life, I think, um, as, as as an admirer from the outside. And we got talking with the with the, with the, with the family that basically still owned Lurtz's archive, Walter Lurtz's uh, uh, son, in fact, who was was managing it. And they were keen to to have somebody take on the responsibility, maybe. But also, yeah, they wanted they wanted the right the right partner to basically come in and take it up and and take it to the next stage uh, and. Um, it's our pleasure to be doing that. It's absolutely fantastic. I mean, personally, as a as a creative myself, you know, in the, being in the industry for quite a long time now, I basically was brought up on Lurch's Archive. You know, we always had it around at college and wherever I've been, any agency I've been, even at home, you know, I've never been more than, I guess, 60 seconds away from one of your publications so it's just really amazing (laughs) and it's clearly a beacon of creativity across the world you know every student every creative at all levels will have a stash around either at home or you know in their agencies and it's generally tends to be the go-to place when you need a bit of inspiration you know when you're stuck for an idea or you just you know you just want to forget about the next meeting or whatever (laughs) Yes. While we have you here, let's love to pick your brain, get behind the publication and in the platform. Hopefully we can get some inside secrets uh, that no one would necessarily know. I mean, you've, you've yes. already actually kindly just sort of given us a brief introduction in terms of how you came into being part of the, the company. But we were just chatting before we kind of started the podcast and you kind of gave a little bit of a brief overview actually about what you were up to before you know, joined Lurcher. So I think it actually, it's, it was so fascinating. It'd be great if you could just maybe run through a little bit about your your background and then obviously how you got to Lurcher's and then we can then just kick off and chat as we do. Absolutely. Is that all okay? That's very good. I can do that. Um, well, I, I suppose I'm a bit like uh, you're, you're describing the, you know, having a stash of Lurcher's and, and kind of you know, growing up with it in some ways as a creative working with it and and I'm a bit like that myself because um I've I've known Lurtzes for for so many years and um you know my, my background is is as a as a well originally as a journalist uh, I, I I 
long time back, to, to English at university, wanted to be a writer, wanted to, wanted to write a novel or something, I don't know, and um, ended up being a journalist. And uh, I, I wrote about creative things because I, that's what I was interested in. So I quickly moved over to that side and read about architecture and in design. And I was one of the founding editors of a magazine called Design Week. Uh, and then I, at a fairly early age, I got to being an editor of a magazine called Creative Review, which, of course, is sort of in the same space a little bit as, as Lurtzers. Um, but I was obviously reading loads of, of, of stuff around the airspace, and I was also started writing books with creative people, producing books about creative stuff. So there was a very successful book in the 90s called The End of Print, about the work of David Carson, for example, that, that I put together, wrote about with David, and um, did a book with Neville Brody, did all this kind of stuff in the 90s. What was David Carson like out of interest? Because he's a bit of a he's, hero he's, of mine. Yes, yeah, well. he's, 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 a, he's a great character. I haven't seen David for quite a few years, but um, uh, he um, uh, then was was you know this this surfer guy that yeah, that, that, that done this wonderful magazine Beach Culture, uh, and then he'd done another wonderful magazine Ray Gun. Uh, that was this sort of you know, it was a period when this exploration of the first impact of digital really that was allowing. It wasn't just digital, but certainly it was an influence, was allowing this exploration of typography in a way that you couldn't really previously do very easily. And um, he, he took it to uh, <laughs> took it to extremes that nobody had sort of tried before, and really, in, in, in terms of the you know, expressiveness of, of, of those magazines. Were you aware of the impact of someone like David Carson would have were you sort of thinking do you know what i think this is almost like legendary like what we're what we're doing here what we're sort of pushing out is going to fundamentally change change people's perception on design well i I think i was trying to do that all the time and obviously links to what i'm you know doing what what i think lurters can do i mean what it has been doing i think that you have this fantastic uh sort of view as a as a as a you know kind of publisher as, as a writer um uh as, as a critic, etc., and, and as a creative too, because I was in one of creating things, uh, and and you and you want to sort of my my pleasure in a way is is sort of identifying that communication sort of flair that that that, that kind of flair of, of 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 energy that you want to sort of identify as really important, and that can influence others, and that can change things. And it can be individuals, it can be trends that are making a group of individuals change stuff. You know, and David was certainly uh, an incredibly strong individual in what he was personally sort of making happen. But he was part of a sort of wave of, of exploration that was going on. So you could say something like the Tomato Collective, for example, that, that was in, in the sort of uh, mid to late, late, late 90s and onwards. Um, yeah, they did some wonderful things. I, I knew them and, and, and uh, in fact, in fact uh, the, the history of typography I did, 20th century type. Um, Carl Hyde, who's part of Underworld, who's part of Tomato, he did a spread with with, with us in that. And uh, you had this wonderful sort of connection of, of, of different people doing things um, that was exploring how typography could be and how it was a sort of a, a, a kind of almost musical thing that you played with. And nobody had really, well, nobody, but few people had sort of engaged with it in that way before. There were certainly... Wonderful things in the, even in the sort of nineteenth century and uh, in, in the earlier twentieth century, with with kind of you know suprematists or whatever, um, constructivists, etc., doing things wonderfully expressive with typography. But suddenly we had this new period when we could, you know, think what, what these digital tools allow, what they allowed in type, what they allowed in music, uh, and so on. You know, you could you could do 
do, do you being invited to do things differently or trying to use these tools i suppose it's the cost of of playing with stuff that and, and the flexibility of, stuff, of what you could do with digital that so you know make it sound like it's uh, uh <laughs> unprecedented it wasn't unprecedented because i say it was it had these this exploration was always the case but there was a sort of a particular energy that happened and a, a sort of deconstructive force that was happening at that time that was that was fun to to monitor and engage with and uh and that's this sort of, I had this sort of dual hat of being kind of in the kind of creative position, but also with that sort of straightforward sort of journalistic approach too. Um, so wanting to sort of document things and, uh, and pick up the right trends and share them to people and communicate and celebrate them. So then what, then what happened after Oh, um, this? Yeah, then I, then I slightly, I'm sort of sounding like I switched around different creative areas and I did because uh, <laughs> I was fortunate enough to have... Uh, Getty Images was starting up, um, and people were really kind of used, but somewhat didn't like um, stock photography very much. We had we had loads of advertising for stock photography and creative reviews, so it's very handy. But um, it wasn't seen as a particularly creative area. But Getty Images came in with a force and acquired a lot of businesses and film businesses, and they needed somebody to help them. Well, obviously, lots of people were helping them, but um, they came to me and asked if I'd be the the, the overall creative head, basically, uh, and. Uh, I became the worldwide creative head, and I, I was at Getty Images for the best part of ten years. And we created things besides all the putting all the imagery together and creating a what, what you take for granted now, a, you know, a, 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 an amazing website with lots of pictures and film in it. But that was well, I can remember us, you know, having our developers build that, and the challenges of building that, and, and the challenges of stopping sending transparencies around the world, and instead just having digital files being downloaded. You know, that that company really forged that, drove that, and um, we invested in producing things like magazines and books as well. To we used to spend millions on on uh, many of your listeners would never, never have heard of such a thing of stock photography catalogs that people used to basically choosing pictures out of, uh, and we could take those millions that were pointless because we no longer you can go online and look for the pictures and produced magazines and produced books and did did you know, quite interesting things with that to, to to basically market the business but also to explore and celebrate the photographers and the, and the work of, of our customers oh what so you used to send annuals around with just Pictures you know in. getty image yeah and they could like an argos catalog that's what it was like yeah that was, what it was like. Oh, wow. was, and millions of pounds were spent and millions wow. of books were produced and uh, they piled up all over the place and that's how people often you know the art buyers would be looking at these things and, and so forth and, and, and creators might look at them to get ideas or to laugh at the awful stocky photos sometimes um but we we were you know, I I got in a guy called Chris Ashworth who I'm sure some of your your readers may know who's a pretty cool designer too. He came in and worked as the design director and um, at Getty, and we got uh, we got other designers in to work with us, and quite a few interesting creatives of various kinds started working with us, and we were able to get some much more interesting stuff done with the photographers and with the filmmakers, and um, you know. Getty was very different from just being a sort of stock photography. It was a, a major brand that had you know, creative cool about it. We we not only won awards with the imagery and, and, and footage that we were putting in, but because um, we changed some of the mix, um, but we also won awards for, for some of the work we were producing ourselves out of our studio. 
So we had a very powerful in-house studio, um, which was great. It's quite interesting that as a brand, isn't it, Getty? You know, even in agency world today, within the vernacular of conversations of like, oh, we'll just get a Getty image, mm-hmm. even though it might not be a Getty image, it might be something from Shutterstock, but it, it's almost like, <laughs> it's like the hoover of, of sort of stock photography, isn't it? Well, it's, I'm it's, sure they'll be very know. pleased. I haven't worked there for quite a while, of course, but um, yeah. I'm sure they'll be very pleased to hear that. But on the other hand, you know, people often say hoover and they buy a by another one. So people, people have started saying I noticed that Dyson, they do say that. Dyson has done a great job yeah. with their brand. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the way you want that, another way you don't want people to take you for granted and uh, you do want them to know that you are the better choice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I mean, Getty, I guess, killed a lot of um, photo shoots in South Africa for creatives, but, um, but hey, you know, <laughs> it's the, the, way, the way the world well, they're, is. They've been through lots of challenges and that industry has gone through wave after wave of, of sort of change. So there was a period when we, we were expert there in knowing exactly the kind of work that should be shot and spent a great deal of money, yes, on shoots in South Africa or wherever. Um, and we could then sell those images for a great deal of, of return. Uh, but you know, at a good price for the user, but you sell it many times over, so it would be be very successful. But then along came a sort of uh, the fact that some people, some photographers, were making a lot of money meant that it could be challenged because maybe that that return could be split over several photographers and and so forth. Or or maybe you yeah. don't need to have all the protection built into certain kinds of images. You can just you know, have, have it royalty free, and and we had royalty free, of course, and and and, and um, over time, royalty free replaced the rights managed model. So the the idea of images yeah. just being, well, you're buying it like you're buying a a book. It's not your book. Other people can have a copy of that book, you know, uh, etc. Uh, yeah. yeah. Wow. So okay. So get Getty. Getty was you were there for ten years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, enough, yeah. Then, then what happens after Getty? Well, then I got, I sort of got back into into publishing more. I've been doing quite a few books over those years, and uh, I had this sort of design book thing. But then I got more into doing sort of photography related books, and particularly some environmental ones, which I was very passionate about, really. And um, I, I did a book about photography. Actually, a book called Photo Wisdom that was pretty successful. And and the way the great pleasure of that was. Um, we did. We did actually put quite a lot of money into uh, a particular charity that that uh, called Photo Voice that um, took photography as a kind of educational and sort of social force out to disadvantaged groups and used it as a way of changing people's lives. And um, Photo Voice, the project that was initially kind of uh, seed funded by our project, Photo Wisdom. Uh, in Afghanistan with children to, to this is, um, you know, obviously, uh, like about 2011, 12, and of course things have changed a lot. Uh, yeah. It was changing then, but at that time we were able to, to have this project done in Kabul with, um, with, with, with children learning, what young, young people learning photography as a skill of expression and expressing their lives, but also potentially a skill that they could maybe realize you can earn money doing this. Um, which you know, was, was, was kind of revelatory to them. So that, that was funded by a number of people, but we were the seed funder, really, that got, got the other money coming in. So that was great. Amazing. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, started doing other projects a bit like that and, and uh, did a book about the rainforests. Um, I did a book quite recently about forests, in fact. Uh, so, yeah, so, so doing that. But then a few years ago, about four years ago now, I suppose, um, a friend of mine, a former uh, person I worked with at Creative Review, he, he was a columnist for us, 
um, who was a very award-winning creative director called Alan Page, we got together and um, as a, as a decided to uh, you know, find a sort of a business that was right. And we acquired a, um, a company which was behind the Crestra Awards. We acquired the Crestra Awards asset, basically, which was a, a long-time global creative award. And uh, um, we took, took that on and kind of rebooted that. And that's, that's out there. That's happening. In fact, we, we launched fairly recently this year's call. And it has categories in lots of different areas. And I suppose it's distinguished by its, from the very end off, really, being um, kind of a more of a virtual um, event, more of a virtual award. You enter, you, it's quite lightweight in its touch on the earth. It's not a... It's not like Cannes, where you know huge number yeah. of people fly somewhere, drink a lot of food, eat a lot of food, have a lot of meetings, uh, and then then off they go. Um, uh, and the model was similar to I think to to where quite a few awards have perhaps gone, and perhaps the creative floor is somewhat similar. Is that you you're you're doing a job for your entrance, um, making sure you you pick out the best work, you know, you you make it accessible to them in terms of the affordability yeah. of entry. Uh, and then you celebrate the work as well as you can and, and communicate it. And, and so you're helping the industry understand what's, what the standards are. And uh, you help the industry um, you know, have information about where yeah. things are going. But you don't make it a huge heavyweight enterprise that, that taxes everybody too heavily. Um, but yeah, Crest, Cresta has been rebooted successfully. And it, you know, we're, we're growing it in terms of the range of things we're covering. It's, it's very global in its entries, more than 70 countries. And that's, that's, that's great. But we were always thinking that to do that, we wanted then to add um, like-minded businesses to produce this. You know, our business is called Creative Standards International. We, the things that are actually about creative standards, about helping yeah. understand where is creativity going, what the standard is, what drives it, um, uh, celebrating the best stuff, but also engaging with people behind it. Uh, and as it happens, um, we we're looking around for our next step, I got to talking with Michael Weinsettel, who is the editor-in-chief of Lurch's Archive and a wonderful chap. And I've known Michael for oof, 30 years, maybe, um, I think. Yeah. So, so uh, we judged competitions in the 90s together, you know, other, other awards and things that we were involved with at the time. And so I've known Michael on and off for the years. And um, in fact, I've been in Lurch's Archive as one of the interviews uh, on a couple of occasions at different times in my career. And yeah. um, I've always admired this magazine. I mean, I'd obviously always known the magazine, seen the magazine and the various things I just discussed. And I was talking to Michael and he explained they were having a, a, you know, a fairly challenging time. This was the pandemic uh, had come along and, and um, obviously made publishing very difficult for particularly a global magazine trying to get this magazine all around the, the world. Um, and they hadn't really moved into digital very much. So they didn't have a big, strong digital subscription platform. They were very print, and uh, and, and uh, that was good in a sense because print's very celebrated. But it was challenging getting the magazine around the world. And um, we got talking about the fact that, in fact, the Lutzer family were looking for somebody maybe to come in and help them with this and to, to hand it off as a, as a responsibility. And there was, after many months of discussion, that's what happened. We, we were able to basically get involved and, and, and take on um, the ownership and, and leadership of Lurch's Archive. Uh, our, yeah, our vision was to think, well, this is an incredible brand that we know. We, we've, you know Alan knew it as a creative director. He, 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 he knew how, what it meant to art directors and things, and, and, and um, I knew it. And um, we were, wow, chance to play with this, as it were. 
<laughs> so, so, uh, but we knew that it needed some changes, and that's what we're doing next month. People will see that uh, quite a substantial refresh of the magazine, and hopefully, um, people will love it. And uh, we're going to put a lot more investment around getting it out there, and in particular, a lot more investment in the website, which will be radically changed, and a lot more going on in it, and a lot more reasons to engage with it, and uh, more, more content for people in different ways. But the core proposition, I mean, as you were saying yourself, you know, alerts is this sort of thing, which is you sort of know it's a fantastic tool for being inspired by and, and having as a record to sort of flip through. And there's something right nice about a magazine that you still don't get with a you know, online experience. Online experiences have all their own wonderful things. And we're looking to do that. But we do also know that print has this incredible um, quality of, of how you engage with a piece of print. But it has to has to be perfected. You know, we, we have to take it to a new level of, of engagement, I think, than, than um, you know, how magazines have been in the past. So that's, that's our challenge. That's what we're right in the middle of doing. Hopefully people will love it. And hopefully people will ins- respond to it and sell us all. Oh, yeah, I like that, but what about this? You know, it's 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 a work. It's a constant work in progress. Every issue, you know. So. There does seem to be less print coming out of agencies oh, yeah. compared yeah. to maybe you know. I'm sure you know, ten, fifteen years ago. I mean, is that where the struggle has been? Um, I don't think they're short of having print, but obviously the magazine's also got film in it and it's got digital yeah. in it. But it needs to actually um, find, and we are finding ways of showing a broader range of the uh, the output of agencies and, uh, and the other businesses that produce the great creative work we want to show um you know we have to, basically we're trying to look at you know creative communication creativity and communication and 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 celebrate and explore it and it, it's obviously 50 percent of it at least more is is essentially what we call digital in broad ways um so we have to find exciting ways of engaging with that both in print and of course very much on on the site um so i think long form reading or or enjoying an image still works very well in print but clearly you want to watch a film you want, you want to watch it uh, on the screen um so yeah we, we have seen it obviously the print has declined as a percentage of, of overall spend and print has declined yeah. um in various ways, but I don't think it's declined in the in the in the opportunity to be creative and the opportunity to use it um, in exciting ways. Um, also, I mean, how you define the edge of print? What you tend to find is people doing wonderfully interesting what you call integrated campaigns, where a print element is in there. Uh, so maybe somebody's done a book, but actually, it's mostly a bit of a film that people engage with, and mostly the best way of engaging with that film is not the is the very short spot they put out somewhere, but maybe it was the um, the, the long form thing that's on YouTube or various various platforms they put it on, uh, and and meanwhile there's also an experiential thing that went on, an event that happened, or a series of events that happened, and it's all part of getting people to know it. And of course, the biggest way in which most people had engagement with the project would have been social media, <laughs> and you know, so so and yeah. that kind of. Uh, what, ways in which brands or causes or whatever it is we're talking about reach people. Integrated campaigns are typically where we're at today, whether it's modestly integrated between a, you know, let's say it was a a print ad and a a, a bit of social media. Um, I mean, there's quite a lot of things which are basically a poster is put up and there's a load of social media done around it. (laughs) Hey, look at that poster on this one site. Um, So, yeah, that's that's a form of graphic uh, element that that gets celebrated. Yeah, I think the challenge for us is to 
constantly be trying to 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 to, to capture these this media complexity that that is incredibly creative that we we are we are using I think sort of a complex range of media in ways that you know haven't been done before. This is one of the most exciting things in communication. Incredibly creative, uh, and so the creative work that you're doing is is not in one medium. It's it, it lives across the media. And it's not a. It couldn't possibly be de- defined by one. It, 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 the experience that people are having will be on multiple platforms, um, and and so how do we explore that, express that, uh, you know, cover that? Print, is, print for us is a very important part of it because it's it's a lovely object that we want to create. That the magazine is, uh, you, you can engage with a magazine in a very different way to how you engage with something on a screen, um, but the two together have to work in the same ways. That integrated, so we're an integrated media platform, and we're covering amazingly complex all sorts of different kinds of integrated media, and it varies all the time. I mean, we can see that in what we get in the Crest Awards; it's totally unpredictable. Um, and I remember the first year we were doing it uh, that uh, I was so could sort of challenged and intrigued by something that um, a couple of guys at PBDO in New York had done with, with uh, using Facebook to. Uh, to launch a basically a new a new bit of music or new, maybe a new album or something by a band I've forgotten what the band was, um, but they did this multi-track thing using the Facebook time lag. That if you do sort of Facebook video, there's a sort of inbuilt time lag. So they did this genius thing with sort of multi-tracking, playing on the time lag. But of course, it was a sort of an event really, and a, and a gimmick you could say. But it, what the music did. And the performance did kind of play with this thing and it created of its, its own creative dynamic that you have to use this time lag and introduce new bits of the music every 40 seconds or whatever it was. And that was that sort of deconstructing the media and then putting it together in a new way was, was I, I found very exciting and very challenging to get my head around, as indeed I'm sure yeah. um, most of the people who watched it, which would have been on on YouTube, I think, at the end, the, end, the main platform may have ended up being so it was launched on Facebook and done through Facebook as an a sort of an event, but then you would have watched the results on 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 you know on YouTube and, and the other video platforms, uh, or possibly through you know, seeing it on some social media platform that that had been then been inserted into. Um, so that that sort of integration is so alive all around us all the time, and I suppose. Um, at risk of sounding a bit pretentious, it's it's, it's like what uh, the likes of you know, Marshall McLuhan or Roland Barthes um, were kind of you know, talking about in sort of their sort of cultural theory stuff, you know, half a century ago, um, at least, uh, you know, about the sort of the medium being the message, and uh, and, and now and now the the. I think as, as a creative working in, in, in advertising and design, whatever, you really have to be very alert to that. You know, you have to alert to that. Why am I using this medium? I'm not, I'm not just going to put something into print or put something into film or put something into a website or whatever, um, or put something onto social media. You have to be always thinking about what that, that medium could be, where it's going to go, how it, how it's not on its own, as it were, the medium you use. It, it, it links with other things. It's all about making a making change happen in the world for the people that you want to communicate with, making them change their behavior in some way, whether it's to go and buy your products or whether to feel differently about your brand or whether to go and get a, a vaccine uh, or whether to uh, support the causes of Ukraine or whatever, you know, all the different things. So how do you 
make change happen in the world. This is what, this is what, this is what we're doing with communication. We're either making change happen in a very small way. I think I'll have that breakfast cereal today rather than that breakfast cereal. Or we're making massive change happen. Totally. Out of interest, how big is your audience? I kind of like to know, to be honest. I mean, it was pretty early days for us to know, but... Um, just you and me. <laughs> uh, well, no, obviously, not, you know, you know Lurches is known by lots of people. You can see them celebrating being in it and things. So there's, there's many thousands of people out there who, who get Lurches and many, and many more thousands who talk about it, share it, and, and read somebody else's copy probably, <laughs> which is okay. Uh, that's fine. Agencies get it and it yeah. gets passed around. And then there's other, you know, obviously we're getting lots of traffic on the website. But uh, and so, social media obviously also um, reaches people and sometimes a main way in which people might engage with your brand on a regular basis, but only occasionally actually uh, really look at the issue or, or spend time in the archive on the site. Because we have all, all, all the past issues, all the, all the stuff that's ever been chosen, basically, for alerts is in the archive online. But it's not, it's not particularly brilliantly sort of easy to use. Um, that's, that's changing. That's next month when we have this lifting up the entire archive and making it all work in a very different way online. I'm wow. touching wood here as I say this. <laughs> touching yeah, lots of yeah, wood. Yeah. And, uh, because it's a big, big task to get it all working in a wonderful new way for when we go live with it um, sometime in the next few weeks. I mean, how many pieces of work have you got? You must have hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Yes, it's, in, right? it's in the six figures. Um, it's, not, it's not as huge as you know, archives out there. I mean, it's, it's this sort of numbers game of archives is interesting because it's not – it's, it's a number that, of course, you couldn't, spend, you couldn't ever watch uh, and you wouldn't want to because um, it's not relevant to a lot of it, let's say. Let's say. Uh, but there, there are archives out there that have millions and millions of things, but it's, it, it's not very good, let's say. A lot of the stuff is you don't really want to watch. The good thing about Lurtis is there was all these submissions over many years and from all that work that was submitted, you know, the best, or the Lurtis version of the best, um, was put in the archive. So you know it's all pretty good stuff. It's not, it's not going to be rubbish. There's a reason why it's there, as opposed to, let's say, there's, there's archives out there with probably millions of, of elements on them, but they're actually just people submitting their stuff. So it's like the engine that we have that you can submit to, um, but it's unedited. It's un, it's un, there's no selection policy applied. That's what you see on some sites. Our job, same as obviously creative awards of various kinds, the job is to go through all that in different ways and, and pick out, what might be of real interest to to people to to look at closely yeah so that sort of leads me on to my next thought really who actually picks is it you are you the person who basically says right this is this is not going in and this is going in <laughs> no i am not michael winesettle is the person who's headed that up over over many years and um, he he continues to do it um there is other people involved and depending on a particular thing obviously when we do a we, we do photography special and we're doing a, a best digital artist special at the moment working on that. Then a jury is assembled for that to, to help advise on it all. Um, it's a little bit different to a creative awards in that at the end of the day, um, yeah, the editor, which is Michael, um, will sort of sign off it in a, in a way that perhaps uh, you know, the jury systems, you know, they have their different, different creative awards have different forms of doing jury system. There's a sort of a, uh, more of a committee-like decision, let's say, uh, happens there or should happen there. It shouldn't be um, quite the same thing as an editorial decision. But an editorial decision is different because you are, uh, and I suppose in this respect, I have you know, influence in you know, working with Michael and Alan working with Michael and Christine, the art director, working with, you know, we, we have a group of us who 
we're trying to make a communication happen that is is a, a meaningful set of work that inspires you, that reflects across a range of areas that you can find some automotive work in there. You can also find some retail work in there. You can yeah. So every every time there's a sort of a um, judgment calls being made to make sure the experience is an interesting editorial experience, interesting online archive that we're building. I think one thing that will change actually um, is as we're opening up to many more digital areas now and uh, we're opening, opening up the submissions so that people are going to submit a wider range of content and, and it will go in the archive and not always necessarily be um, getting the same exposure always in print. So there's two levels of exposure. You can get into print. Um, maybe that's the ultimate honor, being in print and in the archive, but there's also getting in the archive because um, it's important that our search, if you do a search, you can find you know, the, 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 the you know, good good stuff against different different search parameters you might have. Uh, and some stuff isn't really best seen in print. It's maybe best talked about in print, but it's best seen, um, let's say, as a showreel of great work by some director or, 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 or a campaign by an agency. And trying to show that in print isn't the thing, but you might want to talk about it and why it's really interesting. Uh, or you might want to have an interview with a person talking about it. And I think we will be having more interviews um, uh, of that kind in, in, in Lurtzers. Um, but you want to be able to then go and view the whole thing, you know, play, play the films, uh, and that's best done through the archive. So we're, we're kind of getting to this new integrated offer, as it were. What I'm reading between the lines is the person to lobby or bribe is Michael, if you want to get oh, to no, no. Um, no. I, see, I see my job as anything to, uh, <laughs> to protect Michael from that. <laughs> <laughs> And so you can try and lobby oh, me to take down the gate, <laughs> but I'm afraid Michael knows that he can just ignore it and leave leave the flat to come in on me, yeah. or, or possibly Alan, uh, or anyway, yeah. you can't, you can't. Fair enough. Michael is incorruptible, <laughs> incorruptible. Okay, okay, well, good, good for him. Well, he's been it long enough, so I'm sure he's, he's he's heard it all before. How heated does it get when you pick the front cover? Oh, yeah. Because your front covers are, I would say, very iconic, you know, and I can't imagine that sort of just goes without, you know, a bit of a conversation happening. <laughs> Definitely a bit of conversation happening, more than a bit. Um, uh, I mean, how on occasion put out you know, options to the, you know, it's a way of stimulating interest in the next issue, but we put out options of like, here's some things in contention for the next cover. And you know, people do respond with great enthusiasm, possibly possibly people getting their friends to lobby on behalf of one that's got their work on it. Um, but yeah. we, we don't necessarily follow the guidance <laughs> because we can spot that lobbying. Uh, but, but it is interesting that, yeah, how people do respond to different kinds of ideas for covers. And, of course, it is heated a bit about sometimes. Um, but there's certain things that work for covers. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great honour to be on the cover. People love, love, obviously love getting their work on the cover. Um, but one isn't choosing it because you think it's necessarily just to just to make it a nice comment for all the other people who didn't get their work on the cover. It's not chosen because it's it's the best work. It is obviously very good work. It's in the issue. It's chosen because it's the best thing for the cover on that issue. Yeah. And we want to obviously have yeah. an impact that engages with you that you love the cover, and it. Or part of it's 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 the case of the whole, whole object. It's the, the brand is being carried in part by that cover, but so you have to choose this with great care. You obviously want each cover to look a bit different, more than a bit different sometimes. So you wouldn't want two covers coming out that looked. Is this a new one? It's, it's another green cover. I can't I can't handle it. It must be the same issue. Yeah. So you've got some strange parameters going on in your head to make a, a beautiful looking object that's inspiring and 
maybe provocative a little bit. And But you don't want to be provocative every time. Sometimes you want it to be intriguing. Sometimes you might want it to be provocative. Sometimes you want it to be amusing. Sometimes you want it to be you know, maybe beautiful. I mean, you know, there's different things that you've got to play with with a cover and, and to ring the changes. Um, yeah, covers are quite a wonderful art, uh, I think. Yeah, I mean... I, I love magazine covers. I mean, you know, I, I recently uh, you know, moved house and I had so many, so many books, so many magazines, so many things of those kinds, and I had to make some decisions about getting rid of stuff. And I found myself, as I sort of tragically decided, well, I have to get rid of that set of, set of magazines or whatever. Um, I would pull out the one or two that I just, just love the cover so much. I think, well, maybe I should, maybe I should frame these up. And yeah, but I didn't, I think my wife would go for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no yeah, yeah. I th- you're so right and um it's so interesting because like, we had george louis as one of our judges a couple of years ago you know the the guy in the 60s yes, who did all the esquire yeah. and you know you don't see many great magazine front covers anymore but i do i must say like you know you guys you know and michael and the team mm. doing such an amazing job because they are so iconic i mean i you know out of all the all the magazines that i've got like you know they just they just make you smile and i think you could yeah definitely frame them all well up. actually one just thing we are going to do i think um i say i think I, I, I'm, I'm almost deciding it right now <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh we have talked a bit about it is you know we will actually maybe make a, a sort of print service available of um because you can get these kind of custom print things done quite well now yeah, a lot yeah, more yeah. Comes, you, can, you can always get custom print done well but you can get them done in an affordable way at a high quality and actually you can deliver them to people in, in an effective way. So um, we are improving our circulation speed. We're going to get our magazine out much faster. We're going to invest in airmail to subscribers and all that kind of stuff. And one thing we could be doing is actually, I think, uh, if people want to buy a cover or buy their work made into an object, um, you know, we, we should be doing that. In fact, one could also, also almost, but maybe that would uh, be probably too, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking it's on the fly. Um, that's right. Uh, like, as long as I get a 10% commission, yes, let's well, just keep spitballing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good idea. Would it allow people to put their own work on a cover, even if it wasn't cover? I think that we shouldn't do that. That's a bit like, that's a bit like Donald Trump putting himself on the cover oh, of yeah, uh, Time magazine. And stuff, yeah. yeah, but there's something about if you've got your work on the front cover, obviously you're going to get, you're going to buy the physical you know, magazine oh, as well. But I mean, loads. actually having it, yeah, you'll, you'll buy loads. But actually having the ability of having it at a, a, a slightly bigger scale and, and beautifully framed and mounted, I think be, yeah. I mean, I'd, I mean, I've never been lucky enough to get anything on the front cover, but I 100% would uh, yeah. would be buying one of those prints. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes you'd buy a print of it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have to be your own work. You just think that's such a great cover. You just love it. And, uh, yeah. Quite a funny yeah, yeah. cover or a beautiful image or then, yeah. Well, yeah. even if you got the artist or the photographer to sort of do a limited run of, if sig- if, you know signed front cover yeah. um that could be lovely give it as well that one's on, I know, now you've had that idea for me yeah. oh no that one's 20 percent. that one's um <laughs> well, yeah so no I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to pay the artist i'm gonna have to pay you i'm gonna have to pay the printer oh the idea is all right 15 let's meet in the middle 15 15 and that's really cool it's really interesting just looking at the rise of healthcare work right around the world yes. and do you think you know have you noticed that within archive the, the number of submissions coming from healthcare brands and, and healthcare agencies yeah definitely there is some wonderful work coming in from healthcare where in the past um you know it wouldn't it wouldn't make the cut if it came in at all i think in the health a lot of work in the healthcare going back yeah. they wouldn't probably think to enter it in lurches because they wouldn't feel that it was going to make the page but now you've got some amazing you know agencies doing stuff and and, and just you know, brands really looking to to use 
you use creative media in powerful ways to get get their message across and, and, and invest in really serious work. Um, so absolutely, we're seeing gap, and I'd love to see a lot more of it because I think it's one of those areas that that, that uh, yeah earlier we we're sort of saying this. You, you sort of realise this is a period when some very exciting things are happening, and you want to really make sure you document it well and celebrate it and drive it forward with your your support of of communicating and exploring. It. Uh, and I think healthcare is is that kind of space at the moment. Are there any other sort of trends that you're noticing as well? Where do we begin? Uh, I mean, actually, we're just doing a, 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 a in, the, in the next issue, we're doing a thing about automotive um, because we uh, decided to do a sort of almost a, a bit of a special focus and we'll actually run it out as a separate publication as well. But um, so it'll be available other, other times. Uh, and then the first one's on automotive because uh, that, that's an area which um, clearly over recent years, you know, the nature of what automotive, what having a car means to us has changed. Uh, if I don't have a car where I live at the moment, I, I, I'm a member of a car club because I don't need a car. And uh, I'm, I have a car uh, at, my, at my other house in London. So I'm in Edinburgh at the moment and I have a house in, in, in London. And I have a car in London that I never use. I don't have a car here because when I want a car, I want to use a different vehicle. If I want to go to the Highlands and go off-road. I need a big you know, four-wheel drive kind of vehicle. If I want to go and pick up something and have lots of people or whatever, um, I need a bigger vehicle. If I want to run around town and just do a couple of things, I need a smaller vehicle and so forth. So I find a car. And I think this is, this is a lot of people are doing this. They're sort of discarding having a car. I used to have, you know, we used to have two cars, and used cars going around. And now we have no car here and, and one not very much used car in London. They, you know, we'll see a lot of very exciting differences. It's a huge communication challenge. I mean, we're redefining our relationship with automotive and, the, 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 the desires and the expression of the whole thing will be very different. Um, I mean, I hope the advertising gets better because, I mean, car advertising historically was always amazing. Yeah. Like Honda, VW, obviously everyone's aware of the history of that brand. And it just kind of, I, I don't know, over the sort of last five or six years, it's, everything just ends up from a communication perspective, just it's been a bit flat, I would say. Like every car ad says the same thing, you know. It's that's all... what sometimes happens when you have innovation change and, and, and it's like, well, we don't need creativity because we've, we've got ourselves a new electric vehicle. So we'll just talk about how it's, yeah. you know, how it functions. And so you get some very yeah. dull ads or or there's, um, you know, a fact of like, well, there's a shortage of vehicles actually at the moment, isn't there? And um, so then you're going to get into very, simple like we've got one you know you want one of these because we've got one it's almost like yeah, like that or, yeah. or it's a price thing sometimes and it's just all about the fact that we're in that category we've got the best price so you get some very dull ads happening at certain periods driven by the industrial change but then counter to that as soon as it's getting dull there's a wonderful creative opportunity to be creative again and to, and to break away from that yeah, I think you're right. I mean, if you look, I mean, you know, even if you look, <laughs> you try and sort of put one electric car against the other, everyone's going, well, how many miles does it give you? You know, how how fast is it? You know, you don't really get the same brand feeling. It's like, my God, you're driving a Mercedes, dude, or you're driving a VW. It's got to give you something. So hopefully we're going to get, as you say. fairly quickly yeah. is that we, we okay, so I, I think the battery issue clearly is a big thing. That You want some range, and, and I wouldn't actually acquire electric vehicle at the moment probably because of the range i, I do feel that we're going to dra- dramatically get some improvement in range that will level things out a bit actually and then it's going to be oh, well, they work you you can you can get around and you're going to be able to to recharge it and um uh so now what do i want well 
I don't really need speed. They're all quite fast. They're all faster than you ever need. Um, what I want is comfort or what I want is size or what I want is actually just to feel. It's the cool one to have because it comes in more colors or so, <laughs> whatever. I mean, there's random things. If you think about what, um, what Johnny Ive and you know, for, for Steve Jobs did with the, with the computer with the first iMac and did the colored ones. You know, they, well, they did, first, well, the first one wasn't colored, it was, but it was that funny sort of uh, retro look that it had um, in the late, this is the late 90s, wasn't it, when, when the first iMac came out, about 1999, was it 98? Something I, like I was that, very yeah. fortunate. Yeah. I, um, I went to see Johnny Ive when he was, before he was Sir Jonathan Ive. Um, really? In, in Apple, when he was, uh, he was not really known. He was, he was this force who was trying to do some really cool things, but you hadn't actually seen the first iMac, and he took me into the studio. He said, I shouldn't take you through this wall, but you can open this door. I went, and he showed me these mock-ups of the first iMac before it came out. It's like, wow. You, you, that was, and I realized that was a key moment. That was, I was sort of seeing this stuff that was about to come out that was going to change how we thought about computers. They could be really fun. You know, they could be fun boxes. There's a box of, of stuff that works, but uh, now it's going to look fun, and it's going to play in a different yeah. way. And, uh, of course, loads of other... So what was he like? What was he like as a well, he was a young designer at the time, fairly young designer, and he was just so enthusiastic and so so modest, actually, in terms of, of um, you know, he'd suddenly been given the, the freedom to do great stuff where he'd been, you know, I think he'd been two or three years in the studio before before Steve Jobs really got sort of stuck in because um, he came back from having been outside the company. Uh, and suddenly he sort of embraced, you know, oh, we need a different approach here. We need to do this. Well, this guy's got talent. He's got also got some interesting ideas. Let's do some of those ideas. Let's see where he can go with those. Uh, and so, so that relationship between Steve Jobs and, uh, and Jonathan and I, you know, started going, and, and we saw the iMac, and we saw that go and become very exciting. And, and of course, Steve Jobs was a master of sort of marketing. You know, investing in major marketing and, and making making a cool thing look super cool. And he, unlike some other companies, that he, he he knew about. You, know, you, you you don't stop at the fact that it's a cool thing. You make sure you do some cool advertising so everybody loves yeah. the ad and then they love the product as well. Um, so you obviously know, some great ads done by Apple over the years. Wow, fantastic, fantastic. So when are people going to expect the new rebrand and relaunch of, of Lurch's Archive? Next month. Here we are in, uh, I mean, this is going to go out in March, is it? I mean, here we are in March. And, yeah, and, uh, we are 11th of March yeah. today. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it will be in April. And so it will be, when it actually sort of hits the, the newsstand or, or, or props on the desk in, for the subscribers, um, precise date, uh, I think we're in discussion on that right now, let's say, but it, will, it should be sort of from mid-April and the website should be, yeah, about the same sort of time. Um, we're trying to make the two relatively synergistically attached, um, but it may, there may be a few days apart, but April uh, from the midpoint onwards is, is where one should be. Expected to see a very different. I mean, Lurks is, but I say very different. You know, what you like about Lurks is, which is that you know all that wonderful work to look at. That's staying consistent. I mean, obviously we've tweaked the typography a bit and things like that. We're trying to use some of the pictures a bit bigger. Um, so we're trying to. We, 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 as I said, we're going to put a lot, a lot of things in on the archive that maybe aren't always shown as an issue, but also allows us to maybe show some of the work larger and give us more uh, more of a, of a flow and a run with some of that work. Um, slightly more interviews, uh, slightly different approach to some of the interviews. Um, uh, we're moving out. We've always done book reviews, but we'll do a wider range of reviews. Um, so I'm, I'm actually looking at a bit of technology that's really cool 
well, actually, it's a creative thing done with the technology that we'll, we'll just touch on in, in the reviews. So we have various different kind of reviews. have maybe some art stuff. I mean, it's amazing how what art happens in the art world that feeds off of the communications world and feeds back into the communications world. So we'll be, you know, including that. Um, so that, that's, that, 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 that's all, all very much in, in, in the process at the moment. And, uh, is a ferment of activity and, and still decisions being taken. So, yeah, people people's work is right in the mixer right now in terms of it. is it going to be in or not? <laughs> How exciting for those people who have submitted. <laughs> and just like last question from me, I guess, is, is, there, is there a story behind why they're two different spellings? I've always wondered. Oh, yes. And actually, we're, we're messing it up <laughs> a bit more. Uh, that's, a good, that's a good question. Uh, well, the reason is because uh, the name... Lurzer from Walter Lurzer. The, I, mean, I should say a little bit about Walter Lurzer. I mean, he was a great figure in, in German European advertising. Walter Lurzer, who founded Lurzer's Archive in 1984. And um, he built various agencies, Conrad Lurzer, I mean, with Michael Conrad, who people may know too. He uh, did a number of agencies, had involvement, and built, built a, you know, major businesses. Um, and was a professor at, uh, at a university in, in, I think, Vienna or Salzburg, or maybe both. Um, and um, so the magazine was founded in Germany. It latterly was many years in, in Vienna, uh, but yeah, German kind of origins, German culture and Austrian origins. And Walter Lurz's name was spelled L-U with an umlaut out over it, the two dots, uh, R-Z-E-R. So the name is L-U-R-Z-E-R with an umlaut. However, uh, you can't have an umlaut on uh, a URL and... Um, uh, in the US, I think also there was an application that started using it without. Anyway, it, when, when you don't have the umlaut available or you don't choose to use the umlaut, uh, the, the German way of putting it would be put, put the E in, so L-U-E, to get the sound, the right sound of the, of the, of the, of the U or the U. But we're, so that, that led to the split slightly of doing it different ways on occasion. So Lurz's archive with an E is how you have the website. Um, but we are probably being, you know, probably be trying to use a bit more emphasis on the L-U-R-Z-E-R version uh, with the umlaut. Um, but we're not having the umlaut. We may occasionally not even put the E in because it, 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 essentially the lame doesn't have an E. It has an umlaut over the U, so you know how to pronounce the U. <laughs> That's a long way of saying. Fine. Um, you're yeah, still yeah, going to have yeah. both, but it will be slightly changing the mix. But, yeah, the website you know and go to and is in your bookmarks will continue to always work. And um, the uh, the emails will continue to always work. We might change the email to all, actually using the URZER because I think I think just make it as simple as possible with people to find a, an email address. But there we go. Well, at least we know now. Yeah. Well, at least it's, I know. It's a strange bit of – I think probably I – mean, I, I wasn't involved when – they started using it differently. It's probably the key difference with the E is, is people started doing, obviously, websites. And you can't, you can't put uh, marks like that. You can't put non-alphabetical um, char- non- characters into, into, the, uh, into the address. So there we go. Fantastic. Lewis, is there anything you want to cover before Ooh, we cover. conclude? Um, well, I, do, I, I can only say I do hope everybody... Uh, takes a look at us and, and various whatever way they want to take a look at that's archive when it comes out and feedback i think it, what, what i think the key thing and, and people say say community too much um but yeah clearly there's a community around alerts because it's full of the readers the readers submit stuff they they loyally subscribe and read it and they share it online and all that and they use the archive online 
And there is a very much a, you know, a, 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 a huge kind of global community of people engaging with it who, who just want to really explore and celebrate and create great work. And, and, I, and we want to create a great experience for them. So I do hope they give us some feedback and they say what they like and what they'd like to see added and changed, improved, removed, whatever. Um, so please, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's their magazine. It's, it's, I mean, I'm, aware, I'm, I'm aware that I am now with Alan uh, and, and all the colleagues at, at Lurch's Archive, I'm, I'm very aware that we are the custodians of this thing that Walter Lurch have got going, that Michael has been at the head of uh, for, for a long time too. And um, we're all custodians of, of helping helping show the way forward for the industry, working where the industry is taking itself, celebrating it, provoking it at times, commenting on it at times, criticizing it at times maybe. Um, but really it's our, it's our role to, to, to work with everybody and to help them have this incredible dialogue, you know, dialogue discussion between themselves about what, what matters in creativity. It's, it's a great role, to, a great responsibility, but I'm aware that I'm just a custodian now of that for them. So please tell us what we should do better. Well, I think that's a, that's a wonderful place to conclude. This has just been such a lovely end to my week, I must say. It's just been so lovely to hear the story of, of something that's been so iconic within my life. And, you know, I've actually never had a podcast where somebody's talked about David Carson or Johnny Ive. So thank you for that. Prepare yourself for a barrage of lobbying um, from <laughs> no, all of our I'm listeners, no doubt. <laughs> And uh, yeah, just best of luck with with the with the relaunch of it all. I think it's going to be amazing. I, I can't wait for it to come out. And just on behalf of everyone at the Creative Floor, uh, thank you for being a constant source of inspiration. It's been such a privilege, and thank you oh, so much, yeah, Lewis. It's my privilege too. Thank you very much for your interest in us. Thank you.